A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Not tonight, Josephine. Those three words have dominated popular perception of one of the most significant women in Napoleonic France. For 200 years, Josephine's image has been repeatedly tarnished with a sexualization and a double standard of morality that has obscured the three-dimensional reality of her character. Nymphomaniac, gold digger, adulterer, divorcee. Those are frankly some of the kinder criticisms that have been leveled against her. And of course, which conveniently ignore that Napoleon himself took what might delicately be described as an imaginative approach to the questions of fidelity. Tonight, as Ridley Scott's much-anticipated epic hits the cinemas, we're taking a proper look at the woman who helped to shape Napoleon into the man who would dominate Europe. Josephine was not Napoleon's motivation for conquering half of Europe, as Ridley Scott has suggested, but she is nonetheless a fascinating character in her own right. In this episode, Marie-Joseph Rose de Beauharnais takes centre stage as we delve beyond the misogyny to look at the Empress of France in all her complexity. Her character, her motives, her hopes, her fears, her failings and her strengths. Up next on the Napoleonic Wars pod. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod, where we are focusing not on Napoleon, despite Ridley Scott's release. We are focusing instead on the significant other in her life, who is often relegated to quite simply being Napoleon's significant other. Josephine is taking the centre stage for this one. And who better to guide me through the realities and complexities of Josephine's life than the brilliant Rachel Stark, the brains behind the much-loved Marshall series um, that all listeners, regular listeners of this show, love and adore. Rachel, great to have you back. Um, This feels like a continuation of the Marshall's Wives episode that we did, very much kind of saying, well, look, it's great that we've got some men to talk about, but can we also remember that there's, there's a whole other part to this story, which is that they don't exist in a vacuum. They have people in their lives, most famously their wives, um, who who are really integral to their success. So I'm looking forward to this. How are you doing? 
Very good, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to talk about Josephine, much like the Marshall's Wise. As I said before, it's the social history, excuse me, the social history and the private lives of these great figures that fascinate me so much. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Their wives and their significant others are, you know, integral to that. And it's interesting to see the role that they play and the influence that they have as history unfolds. Why do you think it is that we've got this this fixation on the not tonight Josephine thing? Because you've talked about this very passionately in the past and you have a, a better knowledge of this this area than than I do. I, I wonder why there is this temptation to quite simply revert to the the sex, um, the age gap that frankly is absurd because it's like nothing. It's what, five, six years? Um, and, you know, this is a period when 40-year-old men are marrying 20-year-old women. Um, so, you know, there's an age gap to, to really um, ponder on. Um, people often talk about the spending as well. Obviously, people talk about the adultery. Why don't people get over that, I guess, is is what I'm sort of driving at here and kind of focus on the wider aspects of her character and her significance? I think it's a lot of those sort of age-old tropes it's it's angel or harlot and people aren't necessarily drawn to the angel in the home they're drawn to the harlot but it's it's not just a, a josephine thing um you you see it repeat itself throughout history you know like Anne Boleyn for example um or or even you know you back as far as the um you know the Stephen Matilda conflict. They they sort of capitalised on. Oh, she's not really that feminine, and she's got all these unpleasant traits. And so, women's femininity and their sexuality and the relation of that with the the others in their lives. That's kind of that's been a central talking point throughout all of history. I think a lot of work is being done to correct that. There's obviously still room for improvement. I mean, there are really good books on Josephine that are written by women that go into much more detail because as human beings we live in technicolor we don't exist in black and white and we have got strengths and weaknesses and flaws and vices and virtues and I, I hope I will do Josephine justice I'm not here to sanctify her or to sanitize her um, but it's to sort of flesh her out as more than just those sort of stereotypes um, and we, we do that with most notably with Napoleon, we see so many people go tyrant or, you know, genius. And very often he existed in the spaces in between. And we should extend that same courtesy to women as well. Absolutely, we should. And I think it's important to emphasise that despite what some will no doubt be screaming um, into their podcasting headphones, um, this is not revisionism, folks. This is multidimensionalism, which is a very different thing. This is about taking a one-dimensional um, image of Josephine and saying, actually, you know what? There's more to her than the traditional. It is amazing how often there seems to be this sense that Josephine somehow owes Napoleon something. I'm not quite sure why or how. And that it's all her fault that the marriage doesn't work out. And we'll get to the complexities of their marriage in a moment but I, what I'm hoping from this is that people will start to see Josephine quite simply as a human being in her own right who wasn't there as Napoleon's plaything um, and of course Napoleon did sometimes enjoy that kind of plaything mentality when it came to women in his life not least when it came to Desiree right? 
Yeah, he's, a, I mean, one of the reasons I think so many of us find Napoleon so interesting is, you know, even outside of the the military successes and the undeniable military genius, because I do think he was a military genius, he is a very complicated human being and he's this very long list of contradictions and dichotomies because he is a he's a hyper romantic with a capital R figure. He's sort of obsessed with sort of classical tragedy. He writes a romance novel himself, you know, Clisson and Eugenie. Um, but he and you know he was a very racy correspondent. He would have been brilliant at sexting. Um, but he's also very needy and very self-centered and very demanding um with different standards for his own behavior to other people's and it's a very complicated relationship and that's why I think it is so interesting to look through all these various layers to get a better appreciation not just of Josephine but when you view Napoleon through another lens when you view him through the lens of his wife you get a slightly other facet to Napoleon again Absolutely. Um, and yes, I I think different people perhaps view Napoleon's love letters in different ways. But the overarching thing that comes across for me is needy with a capital N. You know, this is this is somebody who is absolutely desperate for attention. Um, and you can make the argument, well, that's because he didn't get enough attention, inverted commas, from Josephine. As I say, you know, we're going to get to why that may or may or not have been the case. Um, but yeah, it's it's complex, and I think hopefully, as as you say, we will understand more about both of them through this this multi dimensional perspective that we're going to try and give people. Um, let's start with Josephine's early life. Um, she sounds very aristocratic in terms of her title. You know, this isn't somebody who seems to have come up from the gutter, Marie. Joseph Rose Tasha de la Pagerie. Mm -hmm. I've probably done a horrendous job with the pronunciation. We know the running joke about me and French accents on this show. Um, we won't go there. But it sounds as though she's coming from money. Um, she certainly would have been considered Napoleon's social superior in some ways, I would say. Um, it's not necessarily a huge amount of money, though, because her... She's, she grows up in Martinique. Um, she is of a, um, you know, French plantation family. She grows up on a slave pa uh, plantation. Her her mother is certainly very well connected and comes from quite a well-to-do family. But her father, uh, José, has no talent nor inclination for business. He has a very good inclination for gambling, um, and for mistresses. And they um, run through funds pretty quickly. And then when a, a hurricane hits Martinique, when Josephine's about three or four, the family home is flattened <clears throat> and the plantations effectively decimated. Uh, the family itself get off, obviously, comparably. Like they can hunker down uh, in the sugar house, which is built of stone, all the slaves obviously don't have a place of safety to go to and they suffer far worse. But the their home is gone, the security is gone, and there's always the intention that they're going to rebuild this house. 
but they, the family end up existing on the upper levels of the Stone Sugar House. So she's from that sort of more aristocratic connection, but very much impoverished gentility. So how does that affect her prospects? How, how does that affect her education as well, I guess? You know, I mean, she's she's out in the in the plant out in the colonies um isolated to a degree on a plantation um from a family that doesn't have money she clearly can't be sent back to france for an education um what are what are her options i guess and, and what actually kind of happens to her? what does she do in the early part of her life um well it's the norm that they would have, the, the plantation families would have sent their daughters to france around age six to get an education and um josephine's we're calling her Josephine, but at this point, of course, Josephine didn't exist. Um, she was Marie Joseph Rose. Her family called her Yayette, um, or Rose if they were being formal. And she, um, her father cries off, sending her back to France because he can't afford it. And she freely admits she had a spoiled childhood. They just ran free. They had virtually no education. She she played with with slave children. She had a, a enslaved nurse. Um, she had two younger sisters and I mean there's a quote where she just says you know I ran I jumped um, they basically ran free the whole time they did what they want her her mother had very little um, energy for for educating them all so although she certainly wasn't illiterate she had precious little formal education and certainly um, comparable to the the young women growing up in France of her social station she led a very different existence there was none of that sort of focus on accomplishments and development and raising a desirable future bride the expectation would have been that she would have married into another plantation family but of course with the hurricane with the destruction of the family home and the fact that they're reduced to living in the sugar house. The the young man of the island say that, you know, Yayette is beautiful, she's seductive, she's entrancing, she's engaging, but the family don't live in a brilliant style. So her prospects are noticeably damaged. You mentioned the entire <clears throat> family doesn't get an education. How big is this family? There's Josephine, the future Josephine Rose, uh, and two younger sisters, Catherine and... Um, Marie-Francoise, called Nanette. Okay, so a pretty bleak prospect for her in terms of where her life looks to be going. Certainly there aren't any indications that she's going to end up being Empress of France, not least because at this moment there is a monarchy. Um, well, there's this urban legend that at the age of 15, Josephine and two of her friends visit the sort of island witch, and it's, it sounds apocryphal, but Josephine does make reference to the story a few times and actually noticeably before she became empress. And she's going to tell their fortunes. And the first girl is told, you're going to be happily married and you're going to basically live a, a really lovely life and die content. What more can any of us wish for? The second woman, a girl, sorry, is a cousin of Josephine's and she's told that she's actually going to be kidnapped by pirates which ends up happening. Um, and then Josephine is told she will be married unhappily, then she'll be widowed, and then she will marry a man um, 
a dark man of no social standing or it's something worded like that basically a dark man who's technically a nobody but who will make her greater than a queen now it obviously sounds too good to be true it sounds like one of those legends where we go back and say oh well you know who could who could have seen this coming but it was foretold but she does make reference to this story a few times so it's it's possible um, she was given a prediction like that. Kate Williams in her biography, excuse me, says that, um, you know, it's more than likely that the old woman saw a thirst for adventure and saw you're not going to stay on this island and become a sort of provincial plantation wife. You're going to go somewhere and sort of capitalised on that. But it's it's an interesting sort of twist on the tale. It's the sort of thing that um, would actually make a really nice little thing to open a movie with quite frankly. Um, but we shall see whether or not Ridley has um, spent enough time actually bothering to listen to the historians who, let's emphasize, weren't there, funnily enough, um, because nobody was there 200 years ago. So uh, maybe he's missed that lovely little nugget, which could have really um, helped to bookend his film. But let's move on from my bitterness. Um, yeah, the... I sense a sore spot there, Zach. Oh, yes, yes. The the claws are, are coming out when it comes to uh, let, actually, let's 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 not delve into that because I'll be here all night. Um, if you, I'm going and ranting on other podcasts, people, if you want to um, hear the unbridled ire of my views on Ridley Scott's comments. Um, but okay, back to Marie as she is at this point in time. <laughs> we will talk about how she becomes Josephine in due course. The first marriage. It doesn't look like she's got great prospects, but my gut, and this isn't, I can't pretend to be well informed, my gut is that she does reasonably well for herself in her first marriage. So how does that come about? So um, her her father, Joseph, has a sister in France um, called Marie Euphémie Désiré, um, and she is the mistress of François de Beauharnais. Who has been a who's obviously um, aristocratic and from a, a wealthy noble family and had been a, a naval officer and a sort of public official, not a very successful one, it has to be said. Um, <clears throat> he was he was married, but he he keeps Josephine's aunt as as a mistress, um, and the after his his wife dies, the relationship between. Um, Josephine's aunt and her her future husband's very warm. He regards her as, as a stepmother and very much as much one of the family as his own mother had been. But um, Euphemie is starting to think about well, what about her own security? Because her her lover is wealthy and well connected, and she wants for nothing. But he's not going to be there forever. Everything's going to go to the young Alexandre, who, on face of it, is very jovial and very warm with her but that's no guarantee of a woman's safety it would probably be quite convenient if the young Alexandra who needed a wife would marry one of her three nieces so she writes to Josephine's father to kind of make this suggestion it's very desirable you know she gets to see her niece in a good position and then obviously she's now doubly connected to the young couple and therefore is more likely to be taken care of in her dotage should she outlive her lover. But the stipulation is that 
Alexandre, who's 17, does not want a wife who's very close to him in age because he wants somebody who can be biddable and he wants somebody who can be demure and who can effectively be moulded. So that rules out Josephine, or Yeyette, as they were, were calling her then. Um, and her sister, Catherine, is the proposed candidate. And there's sort of this sort of ironically tragic parallel here with Marie Antoinette, because it's only through the death of a sister that both of them end up in their respective marriages. Um, Josephine's sister, Catherine, falls ill and, and tragically dies. So the match has fallen through. So someone needs to take her place. And Josephine's father suggests his youngest daughter, Nanette, who's 11. And that's, I mean, e even by the standards of the day is, Jesus Christ, that's pretty horrific. Um, and not unreasonably, her mother and maternal grandmother are completely in an uproar about this. I mean, she's just lost a daughter and now they're wanting to take her very, very young 11-year-old child away from her to be married. Um, and, and things kind of go back and forth and back and forth on this subject. And Nanette gets herself effectively into such a state that she eventually takes a fever. And Euphemy is not understandably wanting to see this settled quickly. She wants to make sure she's got her plan in, in provision to make sure she'll be cared for. And eventually sends a letter saying, look, I don't care which one of your daughters you take. Take them both or just one, but hurry. And so eventually it's Josephine or yet, um, who boards the, the ship to France to meet her future husband, who at this time is taken up with a 27-year-old, no, sorry, 29-year-old married woman and gets her pregnant. And he he's from the eight, I mean, he's 17 at this point, and he's already established himself as a inveterate womanizer. He will sleep with anything that looks at him twice. He... Um, and, and, you know, he writes these atrocious letters to his stepmother, basically saying, yeah, I'm going into the country with this woman. I'm going to do my best to get away with her. He's he's totally shameless about it. He lives to enjoy himself. He's particularly taken with older women. He has a real thing for older women. And he sort of gets his primary mistress at this point pregnant, just as his future wife is due to arrive in France, the marriage doesn't begin in the most auspicious of circumstances, and it more or less sets the tone for things to come. How old is Marie? Um, yes, sixteen. So she's sixteen. He's seventeen, and he's chasing after twenty-nine. Twenty-nine. Like some older. Yes, indeed. Um, right. Well, as you say, that that sort of sets the tone um, and kind of negates the point of the obvious second question I was going to ask, which was, was it a happy marriage? Um, no. Well, you, you you shock me there, Rachel. Truly you do. Um, talk us through her life then as, as a wife. She's now plunged into French society, which is distinctly separate from inverted commas colonial french society mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we don't have the time for the, the the intricacies and the differences for folks who aren't familiar but just take it as a given folks there there are distinct differences there there's a lot of snobbery as well you know you've got this woman who's coming in from a family that didn't have amazing standing out in the colony now she's being plunged into french society without having been exposed to 
society in France because she hasn't had that education in France. Um, there's people, no doubt, peering down their nose at her. She's very clearly um, married to this young philanderer who's going to be rubbing pretty much everybody up the wrong way because he'll just chase after anybody who so much as sneezes in his direction. So what's her life like? I mean, it's it's not a happy marriage. It really isn't. Um, and I mean, you kind of think, well, what else really could it have been in the circumstances? Um, she has quite a good relationship with her aunt. And, you know, she's a famously scandalous figure. She's openly living in sin um, with Josephine's now father-in-law. And quite calm about that. She makes no apologies for it. And um, she is what she is, and she does kind of take Josephine under under her wing. And Josephine's a quick learner. She might not have had a lot of education, but she has the social skills and the sort of inherent understanding of how to conduct herself. She learns to become sophisticated quite quickly. Now, she doesn't always have a lot to work with. Um, you know, as as we'll come through the, the marriage, she ends up having to sell off a huge amount of her possessions when she's abandoned to effectively keep herself in Hortonches. This is, is a life of comparable privilege for, for some people. She's not on the street. She's not destitute at this stage. But she's not living in the lap of luxury. She's not one of these sort of decadent aristos who's dripping in diamonds and sort of completely oblivious to the rest of the world. It's it's not a happy marriage. They do have um, a son initially. And of course, that's for, for many marriages at the time, that's the big celebration. They She's given her husband an heir, uh, Eugène. Um, but all the while continuously putting up with the fact that her husband is serial, serially unfaithful. He's, again, not subtle about it. Um, so potentially having gone into this with dreams of, you know, a, fa- a happy family or because, I mean, her parents' marriage was also very fractious and with an unfaithful father and she'd kind of seen what that had done to her mother. It made her quite embittered. So she'd maybe dreamed of an escape from that, of something different. And the reality that faced her was very different. Um, it was, again, it's the being, resigning herself to being humiliated, to being mistreated, to being, you know, verbal, verbally abused in the event that she uh, objected. But then even worse, when she has Hortense, um, Alexandra, the one who, I mean, very blatantly cannot keep it in his pants because I don't think she's mine with no grounds for that. Um, And yeah, really treats her horrifically. And, you know, at one point they they have a court order separation. Um, On the grounds of his misbehavior, it has to be said, but he takes Eugène and leaves her taunts with Josephine. So he takes her son away from her. And at this point, I mean, her children are all, she basically has, are all the things of any demonstrable value she has we can discount um sort of worldly goods what little she has she ends up selling she's selling her her jewels but she she doesn't have her family on the doorstep she's she's got her aunt but her 
family is half a world away on Martinique. It's not, you know, in modern circumstances, something that happens, you're going to go with your mum and dad or whatever. She doesn't have that. She doesn't have that family network. And even though she has her aunt, she's intricately, intricately connected to all of this because she's obviously still very much attached to Alexandra's father. Um, it's very complicated, but she, so she's kind of on her own doing what she can for her children. And that's a central theme to Josephine's existence. And very often, we, you know, the words you used at the start, gold digger, social climber. She's doing what she can to protect her children. And I bloody well admire that. Um, and she didn't have agency to do anything else. She did. You, she understood how to use what she could, what she had to make sure her children were safe. And that's a running theme throughout the rest of her life. So she understood even before the revolution hit and all the turmoil that that caused, she was going to have to look after herself. And the best way she could do that was by trusting herself. Absolutely. And I think this is the the point that so often gets missed, that Josephine often ends up sort of being used as a pawn in other people's political games. And then people go, well, why is she willing to go along with this? And the reason is, as you say, She's got a family that she's trying to look after here. Um, And raising a family isn't easy in the best of circumstances. It certainly isn't easy in a period of extreme political upheaval. It's definitely not easy if that period of political upheaval not only sees your husband executed, but also sees you imprisoned. And suddenly you're trying to find a way to make ends meet, to raise your kids. Um, And men are just kind of manipulating what you are and aren't going to do in your life. So... You know, there's a need for a, at least a, a modicum of compassion in terms of how we we view Josephine's actions. Let's start talking about, excuse me, about the revolution, seeing as we, we've started to move in that direction. I've kind of dropped a, a shed load of spoilers there. Apologies. Do, do you want to sort of give the, the more eloquent and elaborate version of what happens? Well, the, as you've very rightly said, the, the revolution becomes this period of, of turmoil. And if you have those sort of aristocratic connections, it's very much in your interest to start dropping that. So they go by their civil names and they go by citizen and citizeness de Beauharnais. And <clears throat> so they, they had been leaving, leading this very much estranged um, existence and she had taken taunts with her to, to Martinique for a, a period of time and returns to, to France. But um, in March 1794, uh, Alexandre, who had become a, a general in a period where, as we've discussed it at length during the Marshall episode, it was a very difficult time to be a general because if you acted too brashly, you were guillotined for taking too much risk. And if you acted too cautiously, you were guillotined for not showing enough enthusiasm. So it was a very, very fine line that generals had to walk with the understanding that one mistake or one too many disagreements with the representatives who of the directory who were sort of sent along to interfere, and that was the end of that. So Alexandre um, very much came a cropper. He was... Um, accused of having um, poorly defended mains in July 1793. And it further didn't help that, that he had this sort of aristocratic pedigree because it immediately puts him under a double 
flare of suspicion you know not not only have you not quite done enough um, but you're probably probably a bit of a counter-revolutionary don't think we can trust you and he's imprisoned and of course Josephine ends up following him into the Carlin prison um, and again is taken away from her children she's only able to communicate with them by, by scrolling on the, the laundry lists um, now Alexandra goes to the, the scaffold and you know I'd like to feel sympathy for him but I don't and um, but Josephine lived under the the sort of threat of that happening to her as well it was very much a, a genuine possibility because she's now the widow of a traitor to the revolution she is also yes an impoverished one but somebody who also has aristocratic connections however minor so this is a woman who we could view with a bit of suspicion as well and a bit like you know a couple of the marshals <clears throat> it's it's really only through the very timely fall of Robespierre that the sort of shadow of the guillotine is removed from hanging over Josephine's head but you imagine the stress she must have been through she's imprisoned um, whatever her complex feelings towards her estranged husband must have been, he's gone to the scaffold. Her children are removed from her care. She's only been able to connect with them via scrolling. And yes, her her aunt is is still out there. But what happens if if she goes to the guillotine? Who's gonna who's gonna support her children? Who's gonna advance their interests? Who's actually will they follow her? Eugène's a young man. They didn't scruple to execute young people. Are they going to be next? Uh, you can't even imagine the the mental strain or emotional strain she is living under at that point. And that's something we can come back to when we talk about the fertility thing. But the amount of stress that she has gone through in that very short period, I imagine must have had a knock-on effect on her health for the rest of her life. I think it's really nice that you've you kind of made us and and dwell on this you know the the scale of stress seems like such a trivial word it does to, doesn't it yeah to, to use in this situation but for want of a, a more eloquent and apt word we'll use the word stress um that you go through in this because as you say her priority is perhaps less even her own self-preservation as much as i've got to try and sort my kids out one way or another and the best way i do that of course is survival um so it's it's important and i I think from what we know from what vanessa kirby said in the film folks won't have perhaps got that context and i'd be surprised if we see any reference to um josephine's kids um in the film but we seem to be sort of seeing josephine for the first time at the point at which she's released from prison at least that's the the implication from what Vanessa Kirby said um in her shorts on this um it's it almost feels as though the ground has been taken from underneath her and I think that's probably the the image that we're going to get not to imply that her husband was her rock I mean we were talking about my sass earlier in relation to Ridley um I quite enjoyed your sass in relation to um Josephine's husband um but nonetheless, she's now without, well, actually, is that true? Is she without a formal, inverted commas, income? Because 
I'm not quite sure what happens to the estates of somebody who's executed by the government. Is she? Do, do they pass through sort of de facto to her son, but therefore, because he's still young, you know, she has a, a degree of responsibility. How is that working at this point? Um, quite complicated is the honest answer, and I don't think she gets much of it back initially because she famously sends Eugène to plead for his father's sword to Napoleon. Um, so she certainly isn't existing on a huge amount post-prison. Okay, and how do we get from that to her... I mean, she becomes a bit of a sort of socialite, doesn't she? She is... And this is ultimately how they end up sort of with Napoleon and, and Barras and Josephine sort of end up coalescing. She starts to, well, continues to, I guess, mix within the social circles of people who are politically active. And I think this is an interesting indication into her character as somebody who is not just you know, one-dimensional in her interest. She's not solely about self-preservation. She is moving amongst political animals, inverted commas, at a time when, as we've just emphasised, it's dangerous to express your political views because what's fashionable one day may very well not be fashionable the next. Look at what happens to Napoleon. So how is she navigating this kind of murky water? Yeah, so she befriends um, Therese Cabarrus, who would become... Therese Talian, wife of the actor. Um, and the two of them are released and, you know, there's this sort of, not quite mania, but there's the, there's the feeling that a cloud's lifted with Robespierre's fall. I mean, things aren't fixed by any stretch of the imagination. It's still a time of, you know, France is still a powder keg of political factionism, but with Robespierre, the sort of bogeyman of the revolution and I, and I don't think he was in in his own I think that's a whole other debate for how much he became the representation of it when it he was only a part um but you you get that feeling of the cloud lifting and you can imagine what it must be like you know when things start to come back to normal after a natural disaster or even when and I know this is a very trivial comparison because what we suffered was very different but even the re the release of people going back to normal after lockdown sort of that sort of cooped up sense of fear and anxiety and suddenly there's happiness again and people are meeting again and there's a sense of relief and these two become celebrities they really are and it doesn't hurt that they're both very attractive in very different ways. Josephine had a, I sort of mentioned Anne Boleyn right at the start, and she has the a sort of the same sort of beauty they described as Anne Boleyn, not the sort of drop dead, oh my God, she's gorgeous kind of beauty, but she's she's very svelte, she's got lovely eyes, she's got sort of an enigmatic smile. She smiled with her mouth closed because her teeth were bad because she used to, you know, suck sugar cane so much as a youngster. Um, so there's this sort of, she has she's magnetic, she has what we'd call sex appeal, whereas Therese Talian, she's very much bombshell. And they're very attractive women, you know, they cut their hair short and they wear red ribbons around their neck because the fashion is a la guillotine, I've survived, I, I was for the chop, but I have, you know, they're, they're this sort of, not hedonistic, but celebratory um, atmosphere. And they become 
through uh, again thanks to Teresa's um marriage to, to Talion, the actor, they're seen at all the big events and they become these sort of leading ladies. They're they're set in the fashions and Josephine's salon becomes a place to be seen. And heard me, I mean, Professor Kate Williams, whose biography of Josephine's very, very good. She describes her in this period as a sort of semi-courtesan. I'm, I'm not sure how much I completely agree with that, but she was certainly a leading social figure. She was sitting for a girl with no education. You know, she wasn't a famous woman of letters, um, but she she had people skills. She knew how, she was a great hostess. She knew how to make people feel they were being listened to. She knew how to mollify. She knew how to get people to communicate with each other and to get along. All skills she brought to the table that Napoleon, you know, was never particularly overbrimming with at the best of times. And she had this sort of very amenable personality, very engaging, very entrancing. Um, and she very much looked out for her, her own and her children's interest by cultivating relationships with those in political power. And of course, that's how she comes to, to Barat. He's, he's a rising star, if you want to call him that, but very much somebody who's on his way up. Um, of course, ends up in the, the directory. And it makes sense. You know, if you're going to hitch your wagon to someone you're going to hitch your wagon to somebody who's going to provide you with a degree of security and for your children so you don't end up in the same position that you were before and she's going into those relationships not as a naive 16 year old that she was in her marriage but as somebody who has been exposed to all of humanity's worst She's seen the adultery and the cruelty and the horror and the despair of the revolution. And she makes a sensible decision. She makes a decision for safety. Do I think she was in love with Bara? I doubt it. But she makes a sensible choice. Absolutely. I mean, if anything's going to strip your naivety from you, if you know you can even say that she she was naive by this point um but certainly the revolution would do a pretty good job of that um especially considering her experience so bara she's no before i get to bara i want to talk about sort of the uh, there's a phrase that um beatrice de graf uses from time to time whisperers behind the throne and there's just sort of that slight hint um of of that potential with Josephine in that she's clearly quite intelligent. She's clearly um, somebody who is moving in significant social circles amongst the political class and also amongst people who are going to be, go on to become the rulers or the part of the ruling class of France at this point. Is there any indication that she is inclined to try and exert just a, a modicum of influence on the direction of government or does she sort of play a political game but try and steer clear of being too influential how does she play that again I think very wisely she knew how to ensure that whichever man she was dealing with whether that be Barra or Napoleon never felt that she was making herself more important than him him they were the great man it was her job to support and to flatter or 
to pay attention to you know to make them feel good she was she was very very clever in, in how she did it it depends on what angle you take so again um Kate Williams sort of talked quite a lot about Josephine's ambition um and and I've seen other sources do the same that she she had intentions of being somebody um I honestly don't know whether I would consider her a whisperer behind the throne but she was certainly somebody to whom whisperers were drawn and whom whisperers wanted to socialize with and in whose company they wanted to be seen okay doke so Barra himself um as you say you know she went into this one with her eyes wide open it i feel that she's ultimately just sort of cast aside by Barra. um so that's sort of one thread of this that i'm i want i'd like to hear your thoughts on but before that what is this relationship like because it lacks kind of a a solid basis in that sense of security right i can't quite find the word that i'm looking for um but there isn't that sort of sense of this is going to provide her with that safety security for the long term because she her status is ultimately mistress and this is a period where that that status is transient right you know you you might be in in that particular man's favour one day and then three weeks later not. Yeah, it does fundamentally feel fundamentally feel transactional. He got what he wanted, she got security, temporarily so. It I don't for a second think it was a great love match, that it was a great romance. I don't know that he ever loved Josephine in the sense of of genuine love. Um she was a very enticing figure. She was someone who would look great on your arm. She was somebody who brought a lot to the table in terms of her diplomatic skills, in terms of her skill as a hostess, and in terms of her, you know, interpersonal relations. She she's somebody who would absolutely be great in a in a comms role in modern life or in a mediator role a mediator's role she would be able to sort of mollify and make people feel listened to and calm you know poor oil and troubled waters but yeah that's a problem with mistress status mistresses aren't necessarily I mean her she, her aunt got lucky and she was a mistress for life but that was the rarity rather than the norm and in terms of the end of that relationship with um, Barat and of course being I would argue, sort of thrust into the arms of Napoleon. Um, I My perception of this is that it's very much Barra, inverted commas, gets bored. He finds himself a new mistress. Um, Josephine is told, I'm not going to be supporting you anymore because I've got myself a new mistress. I'm not going to um, spend yep. money on you. And so she basically sort of gets dropped in front of Napoleon um and i would argue doesn't have much of a say in what happens next beyond that point of well do you want some kind of security you've got a marriage on the table this guy is on the rise um because of course at that point napoleon is is the guy who's helped in in saving the uh, the government 
um, you're going to have that long-term security. Again, there's sort of a, a transactional air to it for Josephine, which of course is very different to Napoleon. What's your read of that, though? Yeah, I mean, virtually the same. Barra needs rid of her, but she's popular. You know, he can't completely ill-treat her. And I think Josephine's sensible enough and has learned enough by that point. She's not going to be completely discarded in a sense of completely ill-used. But again, there's limited to how much agency she has. But Barra does need rid of her. And he also needs something to get this general Bonaparte in his good books on his side. And of course, the minute Napoleon meets Josephine, I mean, he's head over heels because he's not particularly, well, he has virtually no experience with women at all. There's, you know, one account, they, they think he's lost his virginity with a prostitute, but that's essentially it. And I mean, that's wholly transactional. But he's... He's had no, sorry, yes, he was engaged to Desiree, but he sort of treated her as a self-help project. I mean, there was no sense of reciprocal warmth or anything like that. Um, But he meets Josephine and it's sort of bells ringing, full on, you know, classical mythology. This is the moment sort of thing. And he's absolutely besotted with her. And again, I think Josephine was sensible enough to realise the prospects are limited. Barra's off the table now. She needs security. She needs to make sure her children get security. She could do worse. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I mean, you've done a lovely job of just kind of anticipating everything that I was going to ask you in terms of that initial dynamic do we have besides the obvious in terms of it doesn't take very long before um the um is it Hippolyte Charles who she's travel yeah who's who's uh it said so that Hippolyte Charles is, is going to be key in the movie um overplayed in the movie he's in the coronation scene um I'm pretty sure he was off the scene by by that point um but the you know Hollywood, you've got to have but a... But were you there, Zach? Were you there? I wasn't. I wasn't there. Um, so, you know, what the hell do I know? I need to get a life, don't I? So there we go. Um, but yeah, that, that beyond that, do we get much of an indication of what Josephine actually genuinely thought of Napoleon, irrespective of the fact that 
she's being pushed into this um just as a character do we know what josephine was sort of making of this new husband who's being sort of thrust upon her i think she understood that napoleon was somebody who had he was going to achieve great things um and even though i i wouldn't be inclined to say she she even fell in love with him that quickly there was a sort of mutual respect i well, no, maybe that's the wrong word to use because Napoleon famously said, I love Josephine, I didn't respect her. Um, but they seemed to come to some sort of mutual understanding. I think she appreciated that he could be kind when he wanted to be. He's obviously adoring, um, you know, slavishly so initially, um, and from someone who's been mistreated by men most of her existence, that probably must have felt quite flattering. Um, yeah, I think she understood that this was someone who she could live with. You know, it at that time he yeah, she the bells didn't ring for her in the way that they, they did for him. It took time for the regard to build up, you know, as for most normal people it would. Um but he must have seemed, you know, like probably an okay prospect compared to what she'd just put up with. How does she deal with that neediness? that comes from Napoleon. You know, the the people won't like me using this phrase, but the gushiness of the love letters, that kind of desperation for, you can variously call it attention or affection, depending on how generous you do or don't want to be. Um, how does she handle that? Because as you say, this is very different from what she's had up to this point. Yeah, and I mean, in the bedroom, she knew exactly what to do to have him, you know, at her feet. She was obviously significantly more experienced than he was. Um, so that was that was the area of the relationship where she was sort of the, if I say the one on top, I'm really just playing in the double entendre there, but you know what I mean. Um, he had all the power and the prestige and you know, the the control in society, he could make his way, he could stand, you know, on his own regardless. Um, but he wasn't experienced in, in that way at all. But she was, and she could sort of um make sure, you know, she had him not under her thumb, but she she had a degree of control or a degree of power. And um, it wasn't a completely skewed power imbalance. Um, but yeah, you read the way he wrote for, I mean, you to whom nature has given spirit and sweetness and beauty, you who alone can move and rule my heart, you who know all too well the absolute empire you exercise over it, you know, foreshadowing there. But her correspondence is comparably more tepid. Again, not unreasonably so when you've sort of just been thrust upon this person. Um, but... But yeah, but I think she also understood that this was somebody who she could mould. And I've said, you know, on a couple of episodes now, Napoleon had a, a huge amount of skill and strength and tenacity and drive. And he was very, very good when dealing with military men at getting people on side. He had an intensely powerful charisma. Social skills, not so much. He, he really didn't have them. He was uncouth and he spoke with a funny accent. And he, you know, he'd been isolated and bullied at school, and and he had this incredible force of personality where he just wanted to bulldoze everybody and have his own way. And Josephine could take that and make it more 
malleable and she could teach him how to be a bit more diplomatic and you know where he was given offense or being rude she could you know completely counteract it and so they made a formidable pair he brought all the drive and the energy and the military connection and prestige he had the hard power she had the soft power and that's just as important um because you need people on side even if you're as talented as napoleon you still need to convince people and you need to get them on side and that's what she could do do we have a sense of her sort of trying to also mold napoleon by sort of teaching him that process of being more um palatable perhaps isn't quite the word that i'm looking for but more socially acceptable and, and more yeah. how um, to behave in society exactly yeah. yeah do we do we kind of get that sense of her sort of trying to sort of coax him into being a, a more um let's say less dogmatic um individual a more charming in in terms of yeah. how he approached people I think she certainly did her best and there was always going to be limits to that I mean Napoleon was somebody famously who had little time for sort of what he called you know felt was trivial or you know frivolous and you know there's these accounts of even when he he, he was the emperor you know that he would sit down to dinner and he would sort of just shove food in his face for five minutes and then right okay he's going to get back to work and you know work was everything for him and he had a prodigious capacity for it or he would you know say to one of the women at the court how strange your eyebrows are you know he there was a limit she certainly did her best to make him more palatable and I would I would argue succeeded um to a degree because he wouldn't have been able to you know, if you think of things like Tilsit and whatever, he would have never been able to do that as, you know, the Napoleon of too long. There was there was a definite limit. Um, so she, she certainly polished him up a bit. Okay, Doug. So what's her life actually like married to General Bonaparte? Because uh, obviously they're married and it's, what, two days later that he rides for the Italian yeah. front? So showing up significantly late for his own wedding because he was busy planning the army of Italy's hopeless romantic that of course he was but yeah I mean he was enormously late to the point that I I gather Josephine was just about calling off when he comes sort of strutting in well never mind I'm here now and they have the the marriage but of course he he promptly clears off I mean she called she always called him Bonaparte she never called him Napoleon you know years later she still called him Bonaparte um so so is it totally I mean again I'm not here to sanctify Josephine or to praise her decisions because yes she was unfaithful and no it's not something to celebrate um but equally you know he'd he'd she'd got married he'd gone away and in comes this sort of dashing hussar was he a hussar I want to say he was um basically into her path um, I mean, the Bonaparte women hate her. I mean, viscerally hate her, um, particularly Napoleon's um, mother and youngest sister. She hadn't met the mother at this point, but um, yeah, it's sort of, she falls very easily into Hippolyte Charles' arms. And of course, that sort of is a major blot against her character as far as the Bonaparte's and Napoleon is concerned and and obviously isn't something to to celebrate anyway because she'd no. married him for better or worse sure absolutely um 
you can understand perhaps the motives, but at the same time, you can look at the actions and still go, hmm, um, because that's that's life, isn't it? And that's historical yeah. characters. They are complex. Um, nobody is, is all angel or all demon. Um, let's stay with family feuds, if we may. And I know this is going to start to sort of go non-chronological because we're going to start dipping across the sort of the, the pre and post um, console era and then on into um the empire and back again but just talk us through the relationship with the family and i guess how that also changes over time because that's going to be a big feature of the rest of this right how do these things sort of shift um and i i feel there's a lot of conspiring against her you know this is it's not even sort of real housewives of of Paris in terms of what's happening here. Some of this, it's it's much more kind of like you'd see in Scandal, the the US um, political drama series for folks who aren't familiar. I'm quite enjoying it at the moment, um, even though I am apparently very late to that party. But it, it's that kind of the political manoeuvring, the one-upmanship, how can you undermine your inverted commas opponents? That's, it, mm-hmm. it feels more political, I guess. I'd say political and personal because the Bonaparte genuinely hated her. I mean, his sisters especially. And I think there's a degree of jealousy to that. I mean, a bit like um, Josephine herself, the Corsican. So they're sort of provincial, they're semi-foreign. Part of me, and they feel very clumsy and unsophisticated in the presence of Josephine, who by this point is at her peak. She is sophistication personified, She's a leader in the fashionable world. She's sort of semi-celebrity. And the hater, there's, you know, an obvious amount of jealousy. And, you know, right from the start, when basically from day one, they work to say, she's not good enough for our brother. What can we do to get him away from her? She's older than him. Can she have children? She's already had two. Um, And, you know, and even from from that point, as as the years go and the desired heir doesn't appear. I mean, Caroline, by this point, married to Mura, they're essentially pimping mistresses out to Napoleon in the hope that he's going to get one pregnant and prove that the fault's not with him. Because up until then, he he seriously considered, well, maybe it is me because she's had two children. And so, of course, the minute Napoleon's first illegitimate child is born, the Bonaparte's are all over it. It's her. She's old. She's past it. She can't have another child. You need an heir. You need a dynasty. And there's sort of these little poisonous whispers in Napoleon's ear all the time. Get rid of her. We we might as well stay with that in terms of fertility and the 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 road to divorce. You mentioned earlier that there is that possibility that actually what she's experienced during the revolution may have had its its factor that's certainly um not beyond the realms of, of medical possibility to say the least um how much prodding does napoleon need in terms of that road to divorce because it's important to emphasize that by this point we've gone from and we will double back and talk about that that the brumet coup and and the the consul system and the transition to empire but by this point we are at the point of empire um napoleon has crowned himself and then he's crowned josephine and the whole point of empire is as you say dynasty you know that 
that sense of succession. So it is foremost in his mind at this point. But this is, it might be a long time after, but this is still the woman who he absolutely teenage, like head over heels, Romeo and Juliet fell in love with. And there are plenty of indications that that affection endures well beyond the divorce um, and, and all the way to his deathbed, ultimately. And even when he hears about Josephine's death, um, there's no question that he is shattered by that. So it's not an easy, It on paper, it doesn't look like an easy transition to make. So how does that journey play out for both of them? So he is actually talking about potentially setting her aside as early as the coronation. Um, but he frets about it because even with the infidelity and, you know, his own serial infidelities following that, um, even with the arguments, um, it's been alleged by some scholars that he sort of got off on arguments because they would make her cry and he found her very enticing when she was in tears. Um, but anyway, the all the sort of complexities aside, he's fretting over it because how can I set aside this excellent woman who's given me so much, but I need an heir. He confides that to Josephine, that he's struggling with this concept and Josephine plays a blinder because right before the coronation, you know, Pope Pius is here and they've only been married in a civil ceremony. And the night before the coronation, Josephine goes to the Pope and discloses that she's worried for her soul because they've only got civil marriage so the eye in the eyes of the church they're living in sin and the pope goes and blusters to napoleon and he's absolutely not going to partake in this if the the imperial couple are going to be living in sin and they must be married immediately now this is so close to the coronation that napoleon hasn't got time to bulldoze him in the way he usually does when he wants to get his own way um so he stamps his feet and stamps his feet and then goes shit okay we're gonna get married um and the makeshift altar, and they're they're married, I think, round about midnight. And it's a perfect move by Josephine because she's given, I mean, ultimately only temp stayed it, but she's given herself a few more years' protection because they're now religiously married and therefore setting her aside becomes that little bit more difficult. So I say fair play to her because that's that's a clever move. Smart. And this is precisely why it's important to to look at the three-dimensional character um yeah it's it's a <clears throat> as you say it's an amazing move um, and it shows the shrewdness and the intellect of the woman which is what yeah. you want to see right but it absolutely but, but it shouldn't be surprising to us either that napoleon falls head over heels not just for somebody on the grounds of their looks but because he sees somebody who I mean, maybe this is overplaying it a bit, but uh, my granted not deep knowledge of Napoleon's inner mindset is that he liked people who were his, who were challenges to him within the right context. Not politically a challenge to him, not somebody who was a threat to him, but somebody who could intellectually engage with him. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, just somebody who was incredibly beautiful might have worked fine in terms of being a mistress for him. But look at somebody like Marie Valevska, you know, somebody who was an intelligent woman with her own ideas and aspirations. That strikes me as being the sort of person that Napoleon yeah. 
took to. Um, mm-hmm. So it shouldn't be surprising that that Josephine was capable of being clever. In, and in this, this woman way. who's existed in the political circles of the revolution, this woman who's incredibly politically savvy, I'd argue far more politically and diplomatically savvy than Napoleon ever was. Napoleon had fundamentally amazing military talents, but a diplomat he was not. He knew how to get what he wanted, but without any other means of saying, I want this and you're going to give it to me. This is the way I want things. Whereas Josephine was very good at getting what she wanted in this context without going into Napoleon and saying, you must marry me or I'm going to make a scene. She did it very cleverly. Is there ever this sense amongst the public that they, I mean, I'm going to use a a modern term here, you know, they have an almost power couple status. Because, I mean, there are two ways of spinning this, right? One is propaganda. This is the woman who is married to the the first consul, consul for life, emperor of the French, um, versus the fact that the neither of them were subtle about their infidelities and so that would have been popular knowledge and so you've got these two narratives that conflict with one another so do people look at them as you know these are the people who who are who have it all they're the go-getters or is there also this kind of vein of ridicule no he's i mean in in Britain, yes, um, but in France, she's incredibly popular. He's the military success, and she's the social success. She's kind. She's engaging. She makes people feel welcome. She makes them feel valued. She's you know, I, she smiles at people. She makes them feel included. She's incredibly popular, um, and that was one of the things he he fretted about when he was considering setting her aside because he knew it would be a deeply unpopular move. Does she have any sort of duties, either as wife of first consul slash consul for life, or as empress? You know, I'm thinking in in modern times, inevitably, you've got a a sense of um, the royal family as ceremonial and being predominantly focused on charity work. I'm not saying that Napoleonic France was built around notions of charity, but nonetheless, she's she. Obviously, she ends up taking a political role, right? Um, it's it's in her hands that power is, at least nominally, left when Napoleon rides for Russia. So, what does she have to do politically, socially, as part of her inverted commas job as empress and wife of Napoleon? I mean, she presides over the court. She's the sort of the host. She is the sort of social leader of the court and she presides over this you know again we, we reduce Josephine to so much stereotype but she presides over this phenomenal cultural movement of art and fashion she's a patron of the arts she cultivates roses um you know um, the amount of horticultural developments that's made sort of under her patronage um she collects art she's she's a real sort of masterclass and soft power and you know we, we see you know still empire line dresses and all the sort of very immediately recognizable napoleonic fashion that she presides over in france she's she's a tremendously brilliant fashionable leader which sounds very sort of trivial compared to, to i know a lot of people are listening for the, the military history stuff 
but it absolutely has its role in society as well and it it, it can cause more socio-cultural long-term shift than necessarily shifting borders do absolutely i mean you just talked about it there you know things in granted my fashion knowledge is slim to non-existent um as people tend to realize when they meet me in the flesh um but nonetheless you know you talk there about things that even i sort of vaguely heard about in a fashion context not that i could tell you what it actually means in reality but um more more socially adept and and better educated people than me will um i want to double back actually to talk about the name if i may um i read i read something curious a little while back um in terms of the the shift in the name so she from what i understand by this point she's preferring to go by the name rose Mm -hmm. the full name we've we've mentioned it a few times marie joseph rose de bohanet at this point um and then inevitably that changes uh, with the marriage and yet napoleon seizes on the joseph and pushes perhaps it's not an exaggeration to say forces her to go by josephine now the speculation that i've seen is that perhaps napoleon has a sort of inverted commas joseph complex in that one of his brothers is called joseph and why would you and and kind of idolized his his brother um and you know perhaps that's where he's going with it now i i question whether or not that is fair considering that the bulk of my knowledge of joseph bonaparte is related to king joseph bonaparte of spain who was not particularly Mm. successful in spain although granted he had been more successful elsewhere but what's your take on this name thing what why 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 does he need to say no you're not going to be rose anymore you're going to be josephine is that a frank mcclin theory the joseph complex um quite possibly i couldn't say the historians I think he has given Napoleon about 13 complexes in his biography, yeah. Um honestly, I'm it's a that's a bit too Freudy for me. Um personally. I, I think it sort of just typifies Napoleon. No, I don't like it that way. I want you to do it differently. Um and I think potentially Josephine sounds much grander than Rose. Um obviously Rose de Beauharnais has been Barra's mistress and you know is it a sense of Josephine Bonaparte's going to be a different person it's when I don't I honestly don't know I mean if I could understand the way Napoleon mind works I think I'd have a very different life um I would certainly be more successful and richer than I am at the moment um but yeah, I don't know what drives it, but yeah, in very much Napoleon fashion, he just decides she's going to be Josephine, and so that that's that sort of the idea that we call her Josephine de Bourne. Josephine de Bourne never really existed, or if she did, it was for a microcosm because she was Rose de Bourne and then Josephine Bonaparte. Um, but yeah, it's just that one of those funny sort of things, isn't it? It really is. I mean, there are two ways that you can. Um, frame that aren't there in that you could draw a direct line to his relationship with Desiree well engagement is probably a better description of it with Desiree um, in that sense of you know trying to mould the women in his life and sort of telling them how they will conduct themselves 
how they'll describe themselves you know that you can draw that parallel or you can just go with the 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 control element and you know does that give you a window into what napoleon was like as a spouse um but we could probably debate that until the end of time one of the things that i do want to touch on is the loneliness or or possible loneliness again i'm not steeped in this like like you are but the the possible loneliness in her life in that she's married to napoleon who's the definition of a workaholic who spends significant proportions of his life out on campaign all over um, Europe and she's left back in Paris so how how does she deal with that because it's very easy to go oh by this point she's empress of France and she's spending lots of money and oh poor Napoleon he has to deal with the debtors and all the rest of it um and isn't you know Josephine awful and she's got it all and yet she's she's just frittering it all away it's very easy to take that line and forget about the psychological reality of actually being married to somebody like Napoleon who's working all hours and and isn't there a lot of the time yeah I mean I mean there's no doubt and she was extremely profligate my god the woman could spend money um she could spend money like it was going out of fashion um, certainly when she was emperor, she had numerous ladies uh, around her, including um, Madame Ney, and she was instrumental in setting the Ney's up. Um, but yeah, it must have been an incredibly lonely existence because you are, you know, even with friendships in a position that nobody else can really relate to. And that's before you add this sort of inherent loneliness that comes with a fertility struggle because it's a taboo subject now um and yes it's secondary and in fertility we're talking about rather than primary infertility but that is a lonely experience anyway without the additional pressure of you're the empress of france and the future of the dynasty that's resting on you are there any moments where she just snaps where she just has a sort of fu moment, but I mean, you think about the sharks who are circling, the pressure she's under. She's also got to deal with political machinations within the government itself. Thinking again about that time when when she's nominally in charge, when Napoleon's off um, in in Russia. Are there moments where it all just gets too much for her, and we sort of get this window into what happens if you push this woman too far? She could hold her own with Napoleon. She could have a blazing row with Napoleon. I mean, she's no wilting flower by any stretch of the imagination, but she's very good at... I don't think she did it very often in public. She was very good at putting on that sort of very dignified, demure public mask. But, yeah, absolutely, there must have been times where she... I'm sure she must have gladly imagined slapping some of the Bonaparte sisters around the face a few times um but no she was very dignified in public the vast majority of the time i think there's probably quite a long line of people who would have dearly liked to have slapped caroline bonaparte quite frankly um although i will give her her due as well and say that much as i am not fond of caroline bonaparte and also not fond of her husband she's also subject to the double standards because a lot of the things that people like to say about caroline oh what a scheming bitch they sort of celebrate in Mura 
you know, oh, he was daring, he was, you know, he he got what he could, he was ambitious, he was this and he was that. Um, you know, and then in the next breath we'll castigate her for being likewise. I will at least be even-handed and say I don't like either of them. But again, it's that sort of double standard of what's admirable and daring and brash and um exciting in a man is less than desirable in a woman. This is very true. Heaven forbid that um a woman demonstrate intellect and ambition and you know that that sense of being an equal to a man. You know, we must clutch our pearls and, and deplore those those hallmarks of, of possible equality. Um but that is the, the legacy we've been handed by history. Um let's talk about life after Napoleon, shall we? Um because there is life after Napoleon, there is life post-divorce and I think inevitably because the history tends to follow Napoleon's story she she almost gets forgotten about um when is the divorce and and what does she do how does she kind of process that because that's as you've indicated she sort of tries to push against it she can understand the reasons why it's it's coming and and all the rest of it how does she process and then we'll talk a bit more about what she actually does that's a hard one for her I I imagine again because as I said they've gone through this struggle of yes secondary infertility she has her taunts and she has Eugène but it's an infertility struggle nonetheless um something that slightly frustrates me a lot actually and I'm conscious of time so I'm not gonna go too much into it is the way that that's framed um so many people sort of conclusively say oh it's how she used contraceptives when she was bar as mistress and it was sponges and vinegar. And there's no denying that's a possibility. But secondary infertility, even today, is just as common. Uh, it's just as common as primary infertility. It affects estimated one in five couples. Um, this is in an age before gynecology and before, you know, um, midwi- midwifery in the sense that we call it today. Um, there's no notion that after her tonsil's birth, she could have had damaged fallopian tubes. She could have had an, another endocrinal condition. She could have had endometriosis. She could have had polycystic ovaries. She could have had perimenopause. She could have had premature menopause. It could have been the la- long-lasting impact of what we see in the revolution. So it frustrates me enormously because infertility is still, even in modern discourse, framed as a deficit. I will wholly indulge my personal biases here and say that this is a very sore, sore spot for me, um, but it's framed as a deficit. And when you see it sort of conclusively pinned on her as something she has done to herself because of her contraceptive use, you can't, now that I'll channel my Ridley Scott and say you can't conclusively say that at a gap of 200 years because we have no idea what the primary cause of her infertility was. But that's, a lonely bloody journey infertility i can tell you um, but also it's not something to be demonized right uh, and this is this is the point that people have sort of gone oh well you know josephine's at fault for the fact that napoleon doesn't have a an heir off the back of this relationship and whilst i do understand the dynastic pressures and all the rest of it in that age it is very much kind of tied up in this trope that the only purpose of marriage and and um by extension actually there's an implication that the only purpose of purpose of women in the world is for reproductive reasons which is let's use the word problematic to to put it mildly yeah absolutely 
Um, so yeah, they they it, it eventually it motivates Napoleon to move for divorce in eighteen oh nine. Um, they had tried sort of taking the waters here and taking the waters there and various things, and it hadn't worked. And by this time, Josephine's getting past the age that even with the aid of modern science, it's it's more difficult to have a child. Um, so they announced that Napoleon's nephew, um, is going to be his heir, and um, of course, then he dies of croup in eighteen oh seven. Um, so the pressure is really on. They need they need somebody to 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 take on the house of house of Bonaparte. So he he let Josephine know in November eighteen oh nine that this was coming and, um. Josephine does get very upset and Napoleon sort of manages to resist the tears and, and he gets quite upset as well because this isn't a I'm sick of you, you've got to go kind of resolution. It is very much for dynastic reasons and although the the, the dynamic of their relationship had changed sort of post-Hippolyte Charles and post-Napoleon's infidelities, it is genuinely still one of quite strong mutual regard and he says, you know, I've got to find a wife that is going to give me a son. And that's why, you know, in your episodes of what if um, Charles Mackay's argument, you know, what if Napoleon had, uh, had a son on Josephine? I think, yeah, would be a very different history. Um, but eventually Josephine sort of agreed. Yes, I understand why you need to do it. And I'm not going to stand in your way. And she stood very gracefully aside. There was a divorce ceremony and it was a very solemn occasion um and they sort of read statements of mutual regard to each other um and napoleon was genuinely quite generous to her in in terms of divorce i know we talk about the parallels between napoleon and wellington and serial adultery and all the rest of it but i would i would argue that josephine in divorce was treated far better than the duchess of wellington ever was in marriage um she she kept her title um she she kept her property she was she, she was very well looked after she had everything but napoleon as a husband she had all the other trappings um of the position and he actually and i can't i can't imagine the sort of bittersweetness of the moment that he took napoleon the second to be presented to her in private you know to meet meet my son it wasn't something Marie Louise approved of. She was very jealous of the fact, but he he took this child who sort of represented everything that could have been and everything she had wanted and everything she had sort of hoped for. Um, yeah, that must have been hard. That's, I mean, to say that that's deeply insensitive is an understatement. Um I think she was actually quite happy to meet him, but it. Well, I'm not even telling you it must have hurt. I can promise you it hurt. Quite understandably so. Yeah. You know, look here is here is what we could have had and didn't, and hmm. Okay, um, I I'm not sure I'll ever understand the motivations behind that, but that's probably says more about me than anything else. Um, but what does she end up doing with? her time because she lives in Malmaison and she cultivates roses um and she lives in very elegant if slightly quiet style um 
you know, she she remained on on good terms with Napoleon. He um, created her Duchess of Navarre, so she still retains titles. She's still a celebrated figure. She's not by any means cast out with nothing. And I think it's telling that Hortense and Eugène, by far two of Napoleon's most decent, most loyal relatives, remained on good terms with him, even after um, Josephine had, had been set aside. And she absolutely still retained a fondness for, for Napoleon because in 1814, after the um the abdication, she was advocating for him with Tsar Alexandra when she was, I'm saying Alexandra, Alexander, Tsar Alexander, when they were walking in the um grounds of Malmaison, she was advocating for Napoleon even then, allegedly talking about wanting to go to Elba to be with him. Um and you know it's during that walk that she she gets very cold and she catches pneumonia. Um, so she was, which would you know be the cause of cause of her death, and so even right to the end, she was still advocating for Napoleon. She was not his enemy by any by any means post divorce. Do we? I'm, I'm sure we do know where she's buried. Is she in Père Lachaise by any chance? Church of Saint Pierre Saint Paul, which is the church at Malmaison, um, is where Josephine and Hortense are buried. And just staying with that, what does happen to her kids? Because, you know, this was a dominant theme for much of her life, you know, trying to safeguard the future of her children. Um, they're, they're obviously sort of very closely tied up with the, the Bonaparte regime. What happens with them post, post-Waterloo? post Yeah, I mean, they, they retain very close relationships with Napoleon and it's Hortense who comes back to Napoleon's side and sort of when Marie-Louise doesn't, and sort of is is his sort of hostess in chief, um during the hundred days, and it's it's one of those sort of immense ironies of fate that for a woman who was set aside for her secondary inf- uh, infertility, and it was Napoleon who married again to give himself a son. Napoleon the second obviously died very tragically wrong, young at the age of twenty one, um whereas. Eugène and Hortense. Hortense is someone on to become Napoleon III. Um, Eugène's daughter married the son of Marshal Bernadotte and therefore became a queen of Sweden. Um, so through um, Hortense and Eugène, um, Josephine has descendants in the royal families of Belgium, Denmark, Luxembourg, Norway, Sweden and the Grand Ducal House of Baden. Um, and isn't that an immense twist of fate for someone who was set aside for her inability to give a dynastic heir? The House of Bohanet lives on, um, where the House of uh, Bonaparte basically doesn't, um, certainly not in the, in the same sense. No. Um, and I mean, it is, it's desperately sad that Napoleon II dies so young but it is sort of bitterly ironic. And her and, and it's through sort of these families that a lot of Josephine's jewellery survives. There's that gorgeous crown um, that the, um, is it Sw- Swedish or Norwegian um, in the crown jewels? It's the sort of like cameo tiara. It's absolutely gorgeous. But so much of her jewellery survives through those connections, you know, so instead of being broken down and sold onto private sellers and things like that, um, it's retained. So yeah, 
I, I hope she, if there's an afterlife, I hope that made her happy. So there you have it, folks. Um, there is a, a much more complex, colourful um, character behind what we've thought, uh, or at least what popular perception is of Josephine. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. A huge thank you to you, Rachel, for taking us through um, Josephine's life. Folks, if you want more on um, Rachel's knowledge of the Marshalls and Napoleonic High Society, she is on Twitter at bookish underscore Rachel, uh, Rachel being spelt R-A-C-H-A-E-L, which I believe is the Scottish spelling. Um Am I right in that? Is it the Scottish spelling? We're we're way uh, off topic now. I, I don't know if it's just a Scottish thing. Um, my mom and dad told my the credits come up in Emmerdale, and that's where my name comes from. So okay, fair um, enough. Well, I don't well my know name if it's comes from a Scottish um, thing. My my name comes from an officer and a gentleman. So um, I'm not oh, sure quite. Not I'm, I'm not sure it is, but Richard Gears in there somewhere, which I suppose is meant to be a good thing. So you know, I, I'll take it. Put it that way. But Rachel. Absolute joy to talk to you. Um, you'll be back, of course, for more martial fun in due course. But thank you for your time. Thank you. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. And if you're loving the show, please remember to leave a review. It's the most powerful thing you can do to help the show reach a wider audience on our quest for one million downloads. Much love to all my Patreon supporters. Shout outs to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Indiana Fats, Stephen Gillen, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Rob Coughlin, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramas, Anthony Gumbau, an anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Ulrich Ducardo, James Fluick, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, David Graylick, Ted Andrews, David Milinsky, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Sam Moore, <coughs> Wyatt Pollock, Carol Dixon-Smith, Roland Shark, and Jason Morn. And the Admirals, John Haynes, Ryan Diamond, J.C. Kaiser, Bob Burnham, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd and Ned Campbell, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest, Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan, Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Walkham, Steve Carter, and Clemens. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars Pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.